Hey everyone, before we start the show, I wanted to let you know that we're proud to welcome Sabian as a new sponsor, and we're giving away a 16-inch crash from their new line, HHX Complex. All you have to do to be entered to win is leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, then copy and paste that review onto our Facebook page. This Facebook step is important because it not only gives us a boost there, it will also be how we contact you if you win. Here's what Sabian has to say about these new symbols. Using technology gleaned from years of developing some of the world's top-selling symbol lines like Evolution, Legacy, and Artisan, Sabian introduces HHX Complex, a new line of exquisitely dark crash symbols. The 16-inch Complex Crash employs a combination of HH and HHX hammering, a raw hammered bell, and a number of the aforementioned proprietary techniques, resulting in one of the richest, sweetest crash symbols Sabian has ever produced. So once again, to win a new 16-inch Sabian HHX Complex Thin Crash, leave us a review on iTunes or Stitcher, then copy and paste it to our Facebook page between now and the end of October. Big thanks to Sabian for partnering with us and sponsoring this giveaway. Check them out on your social media platform of choice and Sabian.com. This is the Working Drummer Podcast. Working Drummer Podcast. Featuring ground level pros from all styles and regions. Real drummers with real stories about making a living in music. Hey everyone, Zach Albetta here, and you're listening to Working Drummer Podcast. Today I'm talking with Pudge Tribbett, whose current main gig is touring with RB legend Anita Baker. Pudge was born and raised in the Philadelphia area where he still lives and got his start as part of his cousin Ty Tribbett's gospel group, Greater Anointing. Pudge's resume also includes Roberta Flack, Ray Chu, and Regina Bell, and he's on the creative team behind Soul Surplus Sample Packs. We're hosting another live event at Drum Paradise in Nashville. It is a money management and personal finance seminar for musicians. Financial advisor Mike Mercurio will be leading a presentation and Q&A about all things money on Wednesday, October 23rd at 6.30 p.m. We'll also be giving away some door prizes from Aquarian Drumheads at this event. Admission is free, but seating is limited. Links are posted on our Facebook page and Instagram profile, so check those out and reserve your spot today. Big thanks to Mike Mercurio, Drum Paradise Nashville, and Aquarian Drumheads for partnering with us for this important conversation. If you want to help support Working Drummer Podcast, a donation of as little as $1 a month gets you access to our exclusive educational content on Patreon. Tons of really useful tips, tricks, and lessons in there from former guests, and there will be more coming soon. So go to patreon.com slash working drummer and become a patron to help us keep going strong. So here we go. I think you'll find this conversation as informative and entertaining as I did. Let's get to it with Pudge Trivet. I've never been a big Billy Cobham guy, but like I'm, I'm starting to see that I should be. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I totally understand. I got a chance to see him live at the Nam. I want to say maybe eight years ago or somewhere around there, mm-hmm. and I was blown away. Like you, you know, I, I've always heard of him and I've heard him, but to watch it live was just. Yeah. It was mind blowing. Yeah. It was mind blowing. He just he plays with so much conviction and and musicality and yeah. sensitivity, like the softest whisper, the biggest roar. Um, yeah. And it seems like he uh, he doesn't play the drum set like a drum set. I mean, it seems like he is just kind of a student and a fan of all the drumming that's ever gone on in the wow. world ever. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah. He he just approaches it that way. He approaches it like the lead instrument that it is in other cultures. Yes. You know, absolutely. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, it was it was super cool. Super cool to see that. And and super fun to just, you know, talk some shit with with Q afterwards. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Cool, man. Thanks. uh, Thanks so much for for carving out some time for us here. Not a problem. Um. I guess I want to start with your your current gig, which is Anita Baker. Yes. Um, so talk about uh, talk about that that gig specifically, and um, you know specifically kind of what kind of venues she's playing today, and and the the place that she occupies, kind of in the evolution of R and B. Yeah. Oh man. Um, so I want to say it's an inter- interesting certain uh, scenario. I would say. Um, I got a call 
maybe June, no, January of 2018. Um, and uh, I was asked if I wanted to do a couple spot dates with uh, Anita Baker. I said, sure. You know, they said it was going to be three dates. So we would start rehearsing uh, somewhere around like the end of February. And the dates were starting around March. So I said, OK, you know, it seemed pretty simple, mm-hmm. you know. So I said, OK, let's do it. So we got the call and they basically said, hey, listen, we're going to do rehearsals in Jacksonville for a week. We did Jacksonville for a week. And the first show was in Jacksonville. So in the weekend, we did Jacksonville, we did Orlando, and then we did Miami. Mm-hmm. So those were only three shows that we had scheduled. Fast forward, that year, we did over 50 shows. Wow. So it was one of those things that was never supposed to be right. <laughs> what it actually happened to be. Because uh, we were basically doing theaters. You know, mm-hmm. we do theaters that would seat anywhere between 5,000 and up. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to say the biggest venue, I believe, that we had did so far was probably the Mohegan Sun Arena. Yeah. And that was about maybe 10,000 or so. Uh-huh. Um, but she she can sell out arenas if she wanted to. I think her thing is, like, to keep it as intimate as possible, and we'll do multiple shows. Right, right. You know, so we did the Fox Theater in Atlanta, you know, which was, uh, I want to say, got to be top three shows ever. Oh, cool. You know, because uh, we did three shows, and the audience was so loud singing, <laughs> singing the songs that the engineer had trouble pushing the lead vocal. Oh, man. You know? Because, you know, you got to think, you got one person who's amplified on stage singing in the microphone and you have 5,000 fans who've been waiting for years for an opportunity. So uh, what she has done, uh, in my opinion, is that she's created the hunger or has helped reinvent the hunger for live music. Hmm. You know, we. We have no stems on stage. You know, every person that's up there is working. I'm so glad to hear that. Yeah. And it was a very rewarding challenge because, you know, after a while you play so many gigs and it's a click track, you know, you got the backing tracks and you got the loops and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So after a while, you have to find ways to make it interesting as a player. Right. Especially as songs because they don't make programs and sounds for the actual modern drummer to play now. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So it's like there's no way I can play 16 triplets on the kick drum and then have, you know, 32s on the hi-hat and then trap snares. So it's just impossible to do it. So you find what makes it uh, unique to play it live. Right. You know, but to, to walk into this venue with Miss Baker has been a total breath of fresh air. Yeah. You know, it's no click the entire show. So however, however she's feeling, you know, she said to me when we first met, she said, I know we've never worked together before. She said, but I like to slow my verses down and I like to push the chorus. Mm-hmm. And I was like, thank you. You know what I mean? Sure. Because that's that's human. You know what I mean? Right. Not that if there's anything wrong. You know, I love playing with click tracks and stuff like that. I think it's great. You know, but to have a band uh, with literally a piano player and a aux keyboard player, um, a guitar and bass and saxophone. That's the problem. And we got to play all the records. Right. You know, so there's a challenge, you know, so obviously, you know, but it it was a it was a very welcome challenge. So I always like to say that she has really, really helped reintroduce the hunger for live music again. That's awesome. That's awesome. And she uh, she's been doing her thing like since the 80s. Right. Absolutely. 30 plus years. So did 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 her music and and kind of her generation um, represent like a, a shift in R&B music? Yes. I will say so. I grew up listening to Anita Baker. Uh, that was like our Saturday cleaning the house music. <laughs> you know, it would come on, you know, you would hear Sweet Love, you, yeah, know, yeah. you know, you would hear the timeless classics. And it was just something that, you know, as a young child, you didn't really put two and two together. And, you know, but by the time you started listening to stuff like Angel and you would hear like she has a different cadence mm-hmm. and a different voice because her vocal range doesn't sit you know, as high as, you know, someone that you would consider like Whitney Houston or something like that, Right. you know, it, but it's like right between that alto tenor, you know what I mean? Where it's like, she was singing certain songs, like I apologize, you know, and the fans always ask, can you please sing it? And she was like, I can't hit those notes anymore. I was pregnant. I was pregnant <laughs> at the time. <laughs> you know, so she was like, my hormones is all over the place, you know? <laughs> you know, so it's one of those things, man, that I, I really believe that that music has, it has shaped R&B because, you know, without Anita Baker, you wouldn't have, um, in my opinion, the uh, the Tony Braxtons. Right. You know what I mean? The people who came after her, who kind of took that torch and kept running into the people who are there now. Uh, we have countless people come to the shows to literally sit at her feet and learn. Uh, Lettucey, 
has come. India Irie has come to the shows. Mm-hmm. Kelly Price has come to the shows. Um, just tons of, I mean, just people that she's touched over the years. So you have anybody from the Atlanta Housewives to Doc Rivers. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so you get a wide spectrum of people, you know. So I, I believe that the music that she has played and her her contribution to the musical society has just been just as great as you would consider uh, Stevie Wonder or Michael Jackson Prince or something like that. So right. she's made a great print, a right. great footprint. And, and, you know, pay, like you said, kind of paved the way sound-wise and vibe-wise for a lot of the female artists, or maybe not even necessarily the female artists, but the R&B yes. artists. Because like, it seemed like uh, R&B really blew up in the 90s. Yes. In terms of, like, solo artists and, um, you know, basically vocal R&B. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it, I mean, she was, she was part of the beginning of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Where is she from? She's from Detroit. Okay. Yeah, she's from Detroit. And uh, I'm not sure where she lives now, mm-hmm. but uh, she's from Detroit. You know? That's, yeah. Now, Midwest. Music you know, she City. Has that, yeah, she has that Midwest fire behind her. You know, she's very confident in what she wants, what mm-hmm. she's looking for. Uh, she has a great ear for her audio department. Huh. You know, and she... She continuously drops nuggets for us because her thing is like, you know, as I'm closing this one door, I want to open up another door, you know, mm-hmm. to allow music to continue to thrive beyond me, mm-hmm. you know. So that's why, you know, she's and she's said it in countless stages. You know, she said, listen, I could take more money and just go out and do with a track, you know. Right, right. But she was like, it's, that's not what music has been about. You know what I mean? It's been dumbed down, right. you know, I, obviously because record labels have folded and now they're trying to reinvent themselves. But like anything, if you don't reinvent yourself, you automatically you die. Right. You know? That reminded me of something that Billy Cobham said from the stage last night. Um, he said a lot of things that, that were cool and funny and inspiring. But but he was like, you know, we have we have records for sale. And Randy Brecker yes. was on the gig last night. So Randy had records oh. for sale. Um oh. But he he said, you know, the 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 record that we're selling here is like a snapshot of where we were that day. Yes. You know, yes. It's not going to be the same as what you're seeing today. And what you're seeing today is not going to be the same as the next record we make. Absolutely. And I think that's part of the beauty of, like you said, just people on stage making music, even if it's not a particularly improvisational show, um, which I don't imagine Anita Baker is. Um, but you know, with, without the tracks, without the click, I I feel like there's just more, um, more connection with the, the particular vibe of that audience, the particular sound of that room. Mm -hmm. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy to hear that she's approaching it that way. Yes. I mean, because, you know, at the end of the day, as musicians and producers and artists and arrangers, and you know, the song is never really finished. Right. You just choose to put out the last version. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and I think it, what happens is, you know, when you watch any band, you know, you can watch uh, some of the newer bands. You know, you can watch the Snarky Puppies. Mm-hmm. You know, you can watch, you know, Corey Henry, you know, Robert Glasper. You can watch so many different people who have taken a thought. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And then somehow allow it to metamorphose into something much bigger than the thought. Right. You know what I mean? And I watch it and it's like, wow, I didn't hear that on the CD. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. But you never know. You know and what I'm saying? To me, that's that's the point of going to see live music. Like, if I yes. want to hear what's on the CD, I'll listen to the fucking CD. You know, right. I'm here to see you humans right here tonight. Yes. And if all you're going to yes. do is play me tracks from the CD, then yeah. <laughs> yeah, Absolutely. You know, and that's some of the things because I've been able, you know, to play in multiple multiple generations and I've been also blessed to play in different genres, you know. So I played in the pop arenas, I played in the gospel arenas, you know. So it's that I can see that, you know, one thing in the gospel industry is that it's a feeling. Everything is a feeling. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Everything is a feeling. So it's like, you know what? Uh, I'm not really feeling that song tonight. Mm-hmm. Or, hey, listen, I'm a little under the weather, let's lower it a whole step. Mm-hmm. Now that changes my entire you know what I'm saying? Position. You know what I mean? So and sometimes they say, well, I want to slow it down or do something a little faster or something like that. In the pop world, it's a little more, you know what I mean? Right. Kinda, it's more you know, of a product. 
Yeah, it's a product. So, th- but thank God for you know the uh, the Adam Blackstones of the world who mm-hmm. give us great arrangements to be like, wow, you know <laughs> that was that was great. You know, uh, I fell in love with Justin Timberlake all over again once Adam Blackstone got his hands on it. Mm-hmm. You know, because it was like, wow, I never heard NSYNC sing like this. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I never heard this song like this. And then you know, obviously, you get to Future Sex Love Sounds with Justin Timberlake and uh, 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 Timberland. You know, which was a heavy, you know, drum album, right. you know, but to, to hear it live and hear how it was approached from the band to me was just like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, like you said, you know, as consumers, you know, we'll buy the record because we love it and we we'll to listen to it. You know, but there's only sometimes once in a lifetime. We may not, we may not get a chance to hear Billy Cobb and play again. We don't yeah. know that. Right. You know, and that's one thing that uh, Miss Baker always says. She says, you know, celebrate tonight. The way tonight is mm. live in the moment. Don't live behind the screen because of most people, when she comes on stage, they pull the cameras out and you know, we live in that age and I yeah. understand. Yeah. Yeah. But don't witness something live in third person. Right. <laughs> you, you, you know what I'm saying? So live in the moment, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Yeah. Listen to what that snare drum sounds like in the room. Yeah. You, you, you know what I mean? Versus like, Oh, the compressed and the, you know, because the iPhone has a great, you know, obviously has a great, you know, audio quality to a certain extent, but it compresses still. Sure. You know, yeah. even the albums, they're compressed. It's not like listening to vinyl anymore. Right. So when you get a chance to get in that room and you can say, you know what? My symbols don't sound the same in this room as they did last night. Right. You know, and to me, that's a beauty. Sure. That's a And, and if, you're, a if you're eating up bandwidth, worrying about your tracks and your stems and your clicks, then your symbols <laughs> right. are not as much like, you know, where you are in that moment isn't as much of a of a concern. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this is, I mean, you and I are almost exactly the same age and, and like right, like in real time, we're both turning into old, like get off my lawn, right? right. <laughs> you know, put, put the phone away, yeah. just mute the tracks. Um, yeah. but, but, uh, man, just, I, I guess I'm in this frame of mind partly because of, of seeing Billy last night. It was just so in the moment. It was so yeah. vital and vibrant. Um, and you know, I, I, I caught myself like wanting to grab my phone and take some video and I took a little bit, (laughs) you know, I took a couple of pictures, I took a couple of videos, but, um, there were a lot of times when there would be some moment and I would be like, Oh man, I want to document this. I want my friends to see this and whatever. But, but I was like, no, I, I just have to experience this moment. Like the picture I already took will remind me of this moment. Yes. Yes. Yeah, because it's certain things that's just, you know, you can't explain it. Mm-hmm. I remember the first time I saw Stevie Wonder. You know, mm-hmm. I first met Stevie Wonder. I couldn't believe it. I froze. I didn't think, take a picture with this guy. You right. know, it was just kind of like, he's been the soundtrack of our lives. You know what I mean? My first gig that I ever got that I was paid to play, you know, I played Ribbon in the Sky at a wedding for like $25 on the piano. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, yeah. so to meet, so to meet this guy who has been a music bed to our lives, to me, the moment can get dwarfed. It can become smaller when you make it about an opportunity. And I'm listen. I'm let me be clear. I'm all about social media. I think is extremely great. Yeah, but I you, think you have to be. It's you know. Yeah, <laughs> you but, can't but, just spurn it. Yeah, and, you can't do away with it. Right. You know what I mean. However, I think anything in excess, you know what I mean, removes the flavor. Yep. You know, it removes the flavor. You know, so I think even sometimes, you know, in the studio when you're miking drums and stuff like that, depending on the record, I'm so open when I get in the studio. It's like, okay, what are we, what's the sound? What are we going for today? Mm-hmm. Cause sometimes you don't need the mic all the times. Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, you know, put a room mic in, Kick you know, and just, overhead, like, and, go yeah. and, and let, and let the chips fall. Yep. You know what I'm saying? It reminds me of the, the, the very first time I went to PASIC when I was like 19 years old. Um, I was in college and I went with a, a buddy of mine who was ahead of me. Like he was in grad school and he was a huge Vinnie Caliuta fan. Wow. And, um, Vinny was playing at PASIC and, and after his clinic, he did the typical, you know, sit at, sit at a booth and sign all the autographs and take all the pictures and shit. And, um, my, my buddy, you know, waited in line and, and he he came out of the line and I was like, so did you get a picture with him? He said, no. I said, did you you get his autograph? He said, no. I was like, well, then what'd you stand in line for? He was like, "I, (laughs) I just, I just wanted to shake Vinny's hand and thank him for his music and tell him what an inspiration he's been to me and looking, looking in the eye and just like, and that stuck with me. I was like, yeah. man, that's yeah. that's worth a lot right there. Yeah. He'll he'll remember that, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome.
I live in uh, Berlin, New Jersey. Okay. Um, but for, for all intents and purposes, that's part of the Philly area. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. So literally separated by a bridge, which is three miles from my house. Cool. Cool. Okay. So I was talking with Q last night and and we were talking about you and and Q was like, man, you got to talk to him about Ty Tribbett. You got to talk to him about the Philly sound. You like (laughs) (laughs) Uh, and and I was like, wow, what is this? So I, you know, immediately just started Googling. So talk about Ty Tribbett is your cousin, right? Yes. Yes. So so talk about the place that that he holds in gospel music and um, and, you know, how how that influenced you growing up. And I mean, it seems like gospel music is kind of the family business for you. Yes. 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 Uh, Ty. Uh, wow. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be where I am today without Ty. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't be where I am music wise, musicality, um, demeanor, understanding, um, without Ty. Mm -hmm. Uh, Ty is my older cousin, but our dads are our brothers. Okay. And uh, growing up in the church, our grandmother was the pastor. Ty was playing the organ. Uh, I was a little younger, so I didn't get on the drums yet. But uh, as I got a little older, I started playing the drums in the church. And we just kind of grew from there. So Ty and uh, his brother Thaddeus and another one of our closer brothers, we call him Dana, Dana Saray. uh, We all kind of had a band at the church. Hmm. And I want to say by the time I was 16, we did a recording for the Prince of Egypt soundtrack. Oh, cool. And uh, that was my first time, you know, kind of like really recording. Right. I didn't, know, I didn't know what to do, man. I was 16. I, I wanted to be Michael Jordan. I didn't know what to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right, right. So, uh, but it was an experience that I'll never forget because, you know, you got a chance to be able to be on a project that would last forever. You know what I'm saying? It was with mm-hmm. DreamWorks and stuff like that. Uh, so from that moment on, uh, Ty came to us and we used to stay in the garage at Ty's house all the time. And we would just be in the garage, just wake up and just play music all day, play mm-hmm. music, play music. And we just go home. And then one day we was talking at night and Ty was Ty said, you know what? I'm going to start a group. And he was like, you know, I'm going to call the group Greater Anointing. Mm-hmm. So we were like, OK, you know, it really doesn't matter to us because yeah. We're going to play music anyway. Right. And see what it actually evolved into doing was something that I would consider to be one of the most legendary movements of all time. And obviously I can sound biased because I was a part of it, <laughs> but I have the ability sometimes, it's a superpower, to step outside of a situation and be a fan first. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I went to college in 98 and from 98 to 2001, 2002, um, Spanky joined. Spanky came and he started playing. Mm-hmm. And to watch how the music went from one dynamic to the next was mind blowing. Mm-hmm. And we just never looked back. We never looked back. So I credit a lot of my musical success uh, to Ty Tribbett for just everything, just information, words that he instilled in us, work ethic, flexibility. Um, by the time after I stopped working with Ty around like 2010, up until that point, I never had a set list. Hmm. You know, so we we would just go out there and Ty would just turn around and just mumble something. Right. And his brother would just press the track. So I had to learn the tonalities of the clicks. So I knew what song was about to play. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> but I didn't know any better. Right. You know? right. I had no reference point. I had no reference. You know, so I was like, well, this is what everybody does. Mm-hmm. And then when I started working in more like corporate environments of uh, 2010, um, I started working with Ray Chu. And uh, that's when I started actually getting set lists. I was like, this is actually a little more stress free. You know, I can look <laughs> down the list and see what's actually coming. <laughs> right, right. You know? But Ty kind of trained us. Ty was like a training ground, you know, kind of like how LeBron refers to Miami as his college years. Yeah. In a sense, yeah. you know, it kind of prepared us for any musical environment, any situation. It has, you know, obviously changed our lives for the better. Right. You know, right. so I credit Ty with a very, very huge amount of success. Yeah. Yeah. So the, yeah. that was that was your sort of musical college years. Yes, that uh, was my musical college. Yes, but you had actual college years, uh, uh, but not for music, right? Oh no, I went to the University of Rhode Island on a football scholarship. No shit. Yes, that, I I totally believe that. I don't know why I said it's so incredulous. <laughs> I mean, look at you. <laughs> well, but yeah, I went to, I went to school on a football scholarship, and I wanted to uh, I wanted to minor in music. Mm-hmm. And I had no idea that football was literally a full time job in college. <laughs> right. And I had to find time to actually be a student. 
right. <laughs> you know, so I wanted a major in mass media communications. And uh, I actually and I never, I never really told anyone this, but I actually considered dropping out of hmm. college in 2000. Two reasons. Two reasons. In 2000. That was really the booming era of neo soul in the Philadelphia area, mm-hmm. you know, the kind of transition to the Philly sound. So, um, a cousin, my cousin named Eric Trivet, who's another phenomenal drummer, he was working with Lauren Hill and the Roots, you know, and uh, he was actually working with Jill Scott at the time. Mm-hmm. All from that, Philly, right? All from Philadelphia area. Yeah. James Poyser, who actually produced Ty's first record, the Life album, mm-hmm. uh, everything was done right there at Larry Gold's famous studio. It's called Milk Boy now, but it was Larry Gold's studio then. Huh. But uh, we, the, the music scene was just flying off the hinges. I mean, people would walk into a studio to hang out, and then the next day they would be going on tour because they was in the right place at the right time. Right, right. And you know? and you're at football practice. And I'm at football <laughs> practice. <laughs> like, what is going on? Like, you know? So I'm thinking, like, well, maybe I can do both. You know, I was thinking maybe I can do both. So what I was doing was when the summertime came, instead of, like, training and, like, hitting the gym, I was gigging, mm-hmm. you know? I went home like, you know what? I have to work on this music because this is it's something I've always been passionate about. Music and sports, you know what I mean? And church had really been the only true loves that I really had. Right. You know. So by the time I saw that, I said, you know what? Let me call my mom and talk to her let her know, hey, I got an opportunity. You can always go back to school. I called my mom. She was like, you are out of your mind. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, you're out of your mind. You're going to school for free right now. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. don't forget. Obviously, we're from Camden, New Jersey, so we didn't have a whole lot of money. Right. You know, had I not been on scholarship, I most likely would not have been able to attend that university. Mm-hmm. You know, um, but, you know, I stayed in it, you know, and then uh, I want to say the following two years later, 2000, uh, I came home. And this is another, you know, a tribute to Ty. I was at the barbershop and Ty came to the barbershop and he said, cuz, do you want to make fifteen hundred dollars a week? And I said, I'm a broke college student. Of course I want to make $1,500 a week. He said, all right, I'm going to come to your house. I'll talk to you later. So he came by the house. He said, we just got an opportunity to sing background for Don Henley. Wow. So you got to think, I'm from Camden. I have no idea who Don Henley is. Right, right. You know? So I was like, okay, what I got to (laughs) do? He was like, here's the catch. I was like, what? He said, you have to sing background. I said, I don't care. Yeah, right. I'll be a roadie. I don't care. I need, I need money. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, I'm, in school, I'm in college, you know? So basically I went out there and that was my opening. That was my, if you can say that was my epiphany then like, wow. Like my first tour ever in life is with Don Henley, the 2000 inside job tour. Wow. And I quickly began to learn who Don Henley was. Right. You know? Right. So, um, and you played, got, you played drums and sang or just, no, sang? so, so initially, I just sang, okay. right? And I and I was probably horrible. I was probably horrible. <laughs> but but I knew how to I knew how to hold a note enough and stay away from the microphone just enough where I was doing my job, right. right? So we did that. But we started off background singing, and then Don Henley found out that Ty had his own music, and Don Henley was so gracious enough to open his stage and said, "I would like for you guys to open for us." Oh, that's cool. You know. So we started doing like two songs a night, you know, so and I got a chance to play on the drums. And, you know, you got to think I'm 20 years old and I'm playing in arenas that are 86,000 people. You know, I was blown away and right. I had no idea. So we and I did it for two weeks. <laughs> you know, I did it for two weeks and I had to go back to school. And that was a life changing moment for me. I had no idea what per diem was. I didn't know any of that stuff. Right. You know, so got a chance to see how everything works on the road at that level. Right. And then when I went back to college, uh, my coaches were like, well, how was your summer? And I was like, well, I did a lot of traveling this summer. Uh, they was like, where did you go? I started telling them, it was like, well, what were you doing? I said, I was playing drums with this guy named Don Henley. They were like, you're lying. You're lying. <laughs> it was like, you're lying. So I was like, no, I mean, because you got to think, I didn't, it didn't register to me how big of a deal he was. Right. You know, till after. Right. You know, so they were like, we're huge fans of his music, Hotel California. And, you know, so they kind of just went down the whole line. So by the time I was introduced to that, that was literally like a game changer. Yeah, that was a game for me. So what did you take away from that experience with Henley? Because from from a musical standpoint, a drumming standpoint, a generational standpoint, yeah. like you, yeah. you couldn't be more different. Like you didn't know who he was just because yeah. it, it wasn't on your radar because of where you come from and whatever. So, so just being smashed together with him <laughs> for yeah. a few weeks, like how did that yeah. change your, your musical perspective? Yes, because it taught me simplicity. Hmm. It taught me, 
It taught me simplicity. It taught me how to understand your own sound and be confident in your own sound. Yeah. Yeah. Because here's a guy who's out here who's a millionaire, I'm sure, a few right. times over. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But but he would literally just come out and sing in some black jeans and a black shirt, <laughs> some black boots. Mm-hmm. You know? You know, and I'm watching this guy's empire right, right in front of him. And he didn't even play drums on the tour. He just stood there you and know? sang? He just stood there and sang. So I didn't find out he was a drummer for the Eagles till later. Wow. Who played you drums? Know? I can't even remember the guy's name, but he was phenomenal. <laughs> right. He was, he was, phenomenal. I was staring at him the whole show. Like, yeah. I want to do that so bad. I want to do that so bad. Yeah. You yeah. know, but it was an amazing, it, it really taught me simplicity because it taught me how important that our instrument is. Cause in obviously growing up in the gospel world, you know, the drums is a very, very major instrument, yeah. you know, um, as time progressed, other instruments were added. But growing up, it was like organ and drums. Right. You know, so you had to learn how to do everything in one setting, mm-hmm. you know. So by the time I was able to watch that tour and watch how they sung those songs and they played big, giant drums, man. <laughs> like, like the toms were like, everything sounded like Phil Collins. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah, man. So everything was so, so large. So it kind of taught me like, you know what? You can be confident in your own sound and pave your own way. And you don't have to sound like anybody else, mm-hmm. you know? And obviously I didn't gather it all then, but right. I believe that was the seed. I believe that that was the seed of it, Yeah, you know? Um, because little did I know that I would, you know, kind of end up where I am now, where you rely on your own sound solely, mm-hmm. you know? Because for most gigs, you know, like, it's a tough situation because if you get a gospel gig, you have to play the record. Right. So there's certain fields that you have to kind of approach, you know, so when Spanky started doing some of the records, I had to actually start studying Spanky, mm-hmm. you know, I had to, I had to learn because there was a certain language that was being said, mm-hmm. you know, what I mean? that was different from my language. Right. You know what I'm saying? So that was like in the front of me, in front of me as a, it wasn't a hurdle, but it was definitely a challenge, you know right. what I mean? Where it was something that okay, okay, take this in. Don't become spanky, but be you. You right. know what I'm saying? It's in our, our, I mean, extremely close. You know what I mean? So we've had countless conversations and uh, just about how to evolve as musicians. We still talk to this day just about what are you doing now? What's your take on this? How do you approach this? Yeah. You know, because, as you know, music evolves. It never stays stagnant. Right. You know what I mean? So like, like you said, what Billy Cobham said is, yeah, what you heard on that tape that was in 92 you know what I'm saying? Right. Look right. how much it's fired. Right. Now, or even if we recorded it six months ago, like, absolutely. you know, completely different place. Yeah. yeah. I talked to, uh, do you know, Lewis Newsom? Yes. Sticks. Yeah. yeah. He's my, he's my last interview. Um, and he talked about, uh, a, a few years ago, he kind of looked around at, um, other drummers in his circle and, and with his background, because he comes from a similar gospel background. Um, and he said, I, I need to figure out a way to sound different yeah. than the rest of these drummers. And his solution to it was to switch to traditional grip, which just yeah. opened up a whole different set of ideas and, and vocabulary for him. So yeah. over the years, have there been ways in which you sought to differentiate yourself from this big bucket of of gospel drummers? Yeah. What I decided to do was focus on the details of my assignment. Mm-hmm. So basically what that meant was... There's a beat, right? In every song, for the most part, there's a rhythm, there's a beat. What I wanted to find out was how can I enhance what's already there, Mm -hmm. right? So when I started working with different artists, um, like in 2010, I started working with Ray Chu. When I worked with Ray Chu, he introduced me to a whole nother world. So I started working with Sheila E., Michael McDonald, um, the list goes on and on. So what I used to do with Ty didn't work in those arenas. Right. My God, my gospel style of playing did not work in those arenas. Mm-hmm. You know, where we hit in the snare and we get the rim too. They <laughs> yeah. weren't, they weren't looking for that. They were like, no, you can just kind of lay back a little bit. Right. You know what I mean? So what I learned in that was, you know what? They want the execution of what you did with Ty, but not what you did with Ty. Right. So that was my challenge. My challenge to say, okay, well, if I want to be a diverse working drummer, I have to be able to play all of these styles authentic as if I wrote the record. Mm -hmm. So what I decided to do was say, you know what? I'm known for my pocket style of playing, right? Mm -hmm. So let me take this and enhance this because people always felt pocket meant boring. People felt like pocket meant 
don't do anything. Right. And that, I think, is that, a, is that a gospel thing among gospel drummers? Like I, yes. interviewed, I interviewed Charles Lamont a while back and, and he <laughs> talked about how younger players will look at a player and be like, man, he's too pocket. And that's, yes. that's like a dig at that player. Yes. <laughs> that's yeah. not good. Yeah. yeah, because the thing, and uh, it's, it's a saying that says, you know, if you keep, if you play the pocket, you keep money in your pocket. Right. And, and it's like, I get it because it does make sense, but no drummer that I know of started playing drums to make money. Mm-hmm. We did it when you were two years, two years old, sixth grade, playing at church. You did it because you loved it. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And what I felt that I had to learn how to do was learn how to respect the music, mm-hmm. not say, oh, this is what the music needs. It needs this, Phil. It's right. like, oh, no. You know, yep. Miss Baker has eight Grammys. Right. She doesn't she doesn't need a drum fill. <laughs> <laughs> you see what I'm saying? She, she doesn't need a drum fill to take her over the top. She has eight Grammys. Oh, that's millions so good. Of albums. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So it's like, for me, it's like, you know what? How can I take what's already here before me, you know, with the great drummers who have done before me, Ricky Lawson? Mm-hmm. How can I take what they have done and just bring it to where we are now in right. 2019? You know right. what I mean? Without being disrespectful or, or, or you know, being sacrilegious, right. you know what I mean, to, to a record. It sounds know? like what you're talking about is... Um, you know, I think the the first step of of emulation for most drummers is to emulate the result of a drummer yes. of a drummer that you admire. But yes. what what you're talking about is emulating the process, the yes. the approach of yes. a drummer you admire. Yes, yes, because you got to think. At the end of the day, you know, you have certain artists, you know, who say, "I've worked with three major female artists um, in the R and B world." Mm-hmm. One was. Roberta Flack, another one was Regina Bell, and obviously Miss Anita Baker, mm-hmm. right? Three completely different styles, okay? Mm-hmm. When I worked with Roberta Flack, she taught me Phil. I always could play, but she taught me, like, you know what? On my stage, I want more Phil than actual playing of a drum. Hmm. So she was saying, we were playing uh, Killing Me Softly, yeah. you know? And I was playing a song, and I grew up once again. I thought, you know, being naive from I'm an inner city kid. I grew up. I thought Killing Me Softly was from the Fugees, you know. Like, <laughs> like, okay, that's, I, like, I did too for a while, and I I grew up in Santa Fe, New Mexico, so it's <laughs> right, right. So I'm thinking like, okay, this is nice. This lady's doing the cover of the Fugees, you know, you know. But then I told my mom, and my mom actually received piano lessons from Miss Roberta Flack when my mom was younger. Wow. So it kind of came full circle, you yeah, know. Yeah. So. We were playing, you know, the whole part with his song. And then you do the little doom, doom, doom. And she stopped rehearsal. And I, this was my first rehearsal. I was so nervous. She was like, she was like, Pudge. I said, yes, Miss Flack. She said, I want you to play that part with a little more feel. And I was like, okay. She was like, so don't play da, da, da. She was like, that's robotic. Mm-hmm. She said, play it like you're smacking a girl's booty. <laughs> <laughs> And I know you smacked a few booties in your time. <laughs> but it made, I understood exactly what she meant at that moment, yep. you know? So she was teaching me, like, don't play what's in front of you. Right. Play what's in you. Yep. You, you know what I mean? Yep. So there's a difference. So you can when you hear Billy Cobham, you hear what's inside of him. Yep. You hear the... You hear pain. Mm-hmm. You hear, man, there was almost a time where I couldn't do this. I want to give up. You hear that. Yep. You know what I mean? So when I was playing with her, she was that way. When I started working with Regina Bell, she was like, she called me nephew. She said, nephew. She said, play those drums. Play everything that's up there. Go. <laughs> and I was like, wow. Like, okay. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because, you know, with Miss Flack, she wanted to, she wanted to, I mean, I had a drum cage. She was on in-ears. I was literally, and she knew if my dynamic, if I got excited, she knew she would just turn around and just give you a slight little glance. And you knew, pull it back. Right, right. Because this woman, she's in her 70s. So she's like, I'm not here to, you know, have my ear beat to death by, you know, because you got a new snare drum. Yeah. You know? (laughs) So, but, you know, I started working with this, uh, Regina Bell, she was like, play. I need the energy. I want you to play. Express yourself. And she was like, have fun. Mm-hmm. And I became her musical director for about three to four years. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was a very, very influential time. So now when I got the call to work with Miss Baker, she was a combination of the two. So I was like, okay, this woman is 60 years old. So let me play soft. Let me play soft in rehearsal. Mm-hmm. 
So she came to me. She said, honey, play the drums. <laughs> if you we're not supposed to be here, you wouldn't be here. Yeah. Yeah. And she said, play, play. Right. She said, because that does something to me, too. And I had to think about it. I said, you know what? How many times has she sung Sweet Love? Right. How many times has she played Angel? Like, how many times have you heard these songs? You know, I apologize. You know, how many times have you heard these songs? So if you hear someone else's take, it can be refreshing. Yep. But you still have to be respectful. Right. Where the song is recognizable. Mm -hmm. So those three women really, really taught me a whole lot just about approach. So in terms of the Philly sound, like, you know, Q, Q mentioned um, Boys to Men. He mentioned yeah. uh, you. You mentioned uh, the Fugees. And, and uh, I'm looking I'm looking at a. Uh, a list here of Philly musicians: Chubby Checker, Patti LaBelle, Boys to Men, Hall and yeah. Oates, DJ Jazzy yeah. Jeff, obviously Will sure. Smith, uh-huh. um, Teddy Pendergrass. Like, sure. um, I, I'm just curious about who um, some of your, in, like, in terms of the household names that have come out of yeah. Philly. Who, yeah. who are some of your favorites and and most in, influential? And who are some of the names? Uh, that have come out of Philly that are maybe less known that you feel should be better known? Oh, okay. Well, I will say this. Our Philly Giants that we consider the top of the top, uh, well, first I give credit to my father, right? Mm -hmm. My father played drums at our church, and I literally wanted to be like my dad. So that's how I started getting into drums, Mm -hmm. you know? So my father taught me the basics, you know? He taught me the pocket style of playing. Um, He taught me to be clean. Hmm. You know, he taught me to not over uh, to overplay. Yeah. You know, because I like, like that this- word clean. I'm sorry to interrupt you. But like no, when, go I, ahead. when I think of, you know, Anita Baker and, and the 90s R&B, like everything is really clean sounding. The playing, yes. the singing, the production. It's just it's a clean, clean yeah. cut sound. Yeah. So that's- because you got because you got to think about it. And I call it the golden era. I don't know if, you know if that's the real word for it, mm-hmm. but you have to, it was so many musicians who were just waiting in the wings for an opportunity. Mm-hmm. When I was working with Miss Roberta Flack, she said, you, you play very musical. And I was like, thank you. And she said, you remind me of Steve Gadd. And I was like, well, there, I think you're reaching. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. But she said that, but she said, because Steve Gadd plays so musical, mm-hmm. he's not playing the drums like, oh, this is a 10 inch Tom. This is a 16 inch Tom. It's kind of like he's using that as a, a accent of, of, of expression, mm-hmm. you, you know, versus a drum, right, you know? Right, right, So, so, and then also she said that she had to fire Luther Vandross. He was singing background for her. Wow. But she was like, you're so great and you'll never become who you're supposed to be if you're singing with me. Right. Right. You know, so in those eras, the background vocals alone were stars. Mm -hmm. Just not their time yet. Right. You know, Uh, I want to say. I think it was. I want to say was Roberta. No, uh, either Anita. I think one of them sung with chapter eight. They were okay. singing, I think, Regina or, or, or Miss Anita. They were singing with Chapter 8. But you can hear, you know, how they were like, the. they just, they progressed. They pushed them. Mm-hmm. They pushed them. Push, push, you know. So coming out of the Philadelphia area, man, it was like a certain sound that you knew you had to be clean. Because Quest Love was known all throughout the city, hmm. you know. So when I was at Larry Gold Studio, I would go and listen to Quest Love and The Roots play. I would listen to James Poyser playing keys because a lot of records that they did were in Larry Gold's studio. So my mind was blown when I started hearing like Water for Chocolate mm-hmm. with Common, you know, yeah, because yeah. Common's like a, Common's like an adopted Philadelphian, uh-huh. you know, because of that sound, you know. So with that whole sound and then also because of the voodoo album mm-hmm. of D'Angelo. You know, with Pino on bass and the roots, basically. Right. You know, so those were, I was like, that's me. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that, that clean, crisp sound is like, how do you get that rim shot? Yeah. You know, so I started, and when we recorded with Ty, we recorded an album called Victory. We was working with the artist, uh, with an engineer. His name was Ryan Moyes. And Ryan was very influential in a lot of those other projects, mm-hmm. you know? 
So Ryan, uh, I started learning how Ryan was getting those sounds and those tones, Mm -hmm. you know? So Ryan has been like a very, very good close friend of the family for years. Um, But also the top of the list for me would have to be little John Roberts and Brian Fraser Moore coming out of Philadelphia. Uh, I'm from the school of Brian Fraser Moore. Mm -hmm. Um, We can go back many, many years. I, when I met Brian, I was in, I was a sophomore. So I was a sophomore in uh, high school Uh and they they were doing a live recording at my church. And my dad was the deacon at the church. And I said, dad, can I please go to rehearsal with you? And he said, yes. But he said, the moment that you don't get up for school the next day, it's over. (laughs) I said, okay. So I went, you know, I had football practice. I would run home, you know what I mean? Get dressed. And I would go with my dad down to the church and I watched because my dad had a slingerland kit Mm. and it was like the mirror tent on the outside. So he had like a 10, 12, 13, 14, 16, 18. He had all these Tom sizes. And I I thought that that's the way you play because that's my dad. Right. Dwayne came and at the time the train, the, the reins of the drums were turned over to me. He said, do you mind if I change this up a little bit? I was like, yeah, I'm interested in what you can do. So Brian just did a 10, 12, and a 16, and it changed my entire life. Hmm. And he had a 12 by 7 pearl snare drum. And I was just like, okay, what is this? You know, because I was working at the time at McDonald's, Mm. and I was working literally 50 hours a day. By the time I got my check, it was like $100. I was like, okay. This is no way for me to live. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So what, but I took that money and I went and I bought a, a Pearl Piccolo snare, oh, 13 no. by 3. Yep. And it, it was a beautiful snare drum. But when I heard depth, that changed everything for me. Mm. It changed everything for me. So when I heard Brian Fraser Moore play, it changed everything for me. So Brian played for many groups that was in the Philadelphia area, uh, gospel, secular uh, he did so many different things, but what made Brian stand out to me was his precision. Mm-hmm. Brian's precision. When I watched Brian play at this recording, it was called. It was Steve Middleton was is the guy's name. He was a gospel artist in Philadelphia. When I watched him play, I could not believe how clean this guy was, and he's fast. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I'm not clean. and i was like i'm certainly not fast right i was like i'm not fast clean right and i was like i need to find out which take and as a youngster i went after chasing the fast first right versus establishing clean of course most of us do absolutely so one time brian had a gig and he was late to rehearsal so i was there and they were like hey hey come on punch hop on the drums until brian gets here so i was playing and I told you I had, when I got my check, you know, I went and bought a snare drum and I had bought this little splash, about a 12 inch Zildjian splash. So here I am playing the song and I'm hitting the splash on the one every single time. Poor, poor splash. I'm wearing the splash out. So, so Brian comes into church and it's kind of like, OK, don't uh, don't panic. You know what I mean? But your, your idol, your hero is walking through the door. So Brian walks up to the drums and he's grooving with me like this. And I'm just beating this poor 12-inch splash to, to death. <laughs> and while I'm playing it, Brian grabs the splash and says, hey, hey, hey. He was like, that's not what this symbol is for. Mm. He was like, this is an accent symbol. He was like, you use it for coloring. It's not a main crash. Right. And when he said it, I couldn't be offended because I was like, he's talking to me. Uh-huh. Like, <laughs> right. You know what I mean? So it's like, I'm, I'm in heaven right now. So, and then from that moment on in 95, he became my mentor. Hmm. He became my mentor. And to this day, Brian would call me and say, Hey, what are you doing? What symbols are you playing? And Brian called me when uh, I started working with uh, Lana Del Rey in 2011. Mm-hmm. And Brian said, what, what symbols are you using? And I was like, Oh, I'm just going to use some. He was like, symbols are not universal. He was like, all symbols don't fit all genres of music. You know, he was like, so if you're playing pop, you need to get symbols that's going to cut through. Like he kind of walked me through, you know what I mean? Establishing my sound. So Brian, so to me, Brian Fraser Moore, his, he's the king of Philadelphia in my, (laughs) my, you know, in my book. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. (laughs) You know what? I I wanted to backtrack real fast. Mm -hmm. There are a couple guys that I wanted to mention that you said who should be known coming from the Philadelphia area. Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. So one of them is Mark Thomas. Mm Mm-hmm. 
Mark Thomas is from, he lives in Delaware, but he's, he hangs out a lot in the Philadelphia area. Phenomenal drummer, plays with Eric Roberson, um, great drummer. Another guy's name is Lionel Forrester. And uh, Lionel Forrester is a phenomenal jazz drummer. I mean, young cat, and he's, he's smoking. Yeah. He's smoking. Cool. Uh, very, very good guy. And another personal favorite of mine, his name is John Franklin. Uh, great drummer from the Philadelphia area. He does great job producing. He puts tracks together. He puts his whole heart into every time he's playing. And it's contagious. Yeah. He has a contagious energy around him. And uh, another guy named Devin Harris. Uh, Devin Harris is like in the North Jersey area, more like closer to New York. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he does a lot of work down this way. And uh, Dev is one of those groundbreaking, life-changing drummers when you actually watch <laughs> him play. You know, and this guy's like maybe like 23. Yeah. You know, but, but he has such a such a passion of just information, music, and learning and listening. You know, so some of the, those are some of my favorite guys that I listen to right now who are younger than me, but keep pushing me as well. Cool, cool. Yeah. Those are those are a few good names for our listeners to rush yes. rush immediately to YouTube and Instagram. Yes, sir. <laughs> This episode is brought to you by DrumSellers.com, the niche marketplace where drummers, drum retailers, and drum manufacturers buy and sell their gear. List your drums for sale for free, and the only fee is 4% if it sells. Simple. Check out all the new used vintage and custom drum eye candy at DrumSellers.com. Um, yeah, it's interesting about... about um you talked about like finding your sound and, and bringing in different gear. Um, and I think like, obviously you got to find gear that you're comfortable with and, uh, gear that makes you smile when you hit it. Um, but it's, it sounds like Brian kind of opened your eyes to, um, what's appropriate. Like, you know, bringing, bringing gear into your setup that you're not necessarily comfortable with, but you know, it's what this music needs. Yes. So get comfortable with it. Absolutely. Yeah. And and that was a challenge because for a while I was search for gear that I could afford. Mm -hmm. It wasn't if I needed it or not. It was like, this is $60. Oh, I'm getting it. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? But the gig that I was playing required something much bigger. Mm hmm. You know, so it'd be like if you got called to play on a jazz gig, you know, with, you know, whoever, and you show up with a bunch of stacks or <laughs> classes. It's like, OK, I'm not really sure how this is going to pan out for you. Yeah. You know what I mean? So I was buying initially what I could afford. Right. You know, and then those conversations, you know, I was taught to, you know, you have to get what you need. There's nothing wrong with getting stacks and splashes, but those are accessories, you know. Right. And I think it's a it's a line that every drummer has to walk between like you know creating your your signature sound where like you could yeah. hear you could hear a certain snare drum or a certain cymbal and you know not become world famous necessarily but the yeah. the people that you work with who trust you like yes. like those sounds you know they know you Absolutely. for those sounds versus yes. what we were talking about just kind of you know, my sounds be damned. This song yes. needs this yes. sound. Yes, you know? absolutely. Um, and I, I, I feel like every every gig is kind of a combination of those two. Yes, it is because it's a fine line too. Mm-hmm. Because if they call you, they want you. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? So, and it's like um, what we were saying about yeah. about process versus result. Like they don't necessarily want the result that they heard you last time. They yes. want they want the process. They want your yes. brain, your heart, your soul. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And that's and that can be a challenge, you know, um, when you're dealing with limited resources initially, mm-hmm. you know, um, I started using Sabian symbols around maybe 2004. Mm-hmm. And those were the symbols that spoke to me. Yeah. You know, I became an endorsee in 2005. I became and, an endorsee like four months ago. Yeah. And, but to me, it's the greatest symbol company. And I say that because it's my preference. Mm-hmm. That's my preference. If you ask me, hey. To me, they sound the best right. because I've been able to use them in multiple arenas. Mm-hmm. You know, so if I need something that cuts like this, they'll say, "Well, try this symbol. Try this. This is better for here." And then they would give me even stuff that like the evolutions because I heard Brian Fraser Moore play the evolution symbols mm-hmm. first, and he told me he was like, "I don't really recommend these for gigs, like live gigs." He said because they'll warp. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Eventually. Yeah. But as far as studio swelling, I don't know if there's a better symbol. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like that process. Now, once I was able to be in a situation where I started understanding the lines, the differences, because I started off playing AAX, mm-hmm. you know, that was my line, you know. But then I want to say around 2007 ish, I switched over to the HHX series. Mm-hmm. And I 
never look back because that's more of my sound. Right. You know? Right. It's, yeah. And it's a, it's a weird thing with gear, how you can see somebody else play something and you're like, oh, I want to get that sound. I need yeah. to get that sound. But then you get it and you're like, well, I, I can't do with this thing what that guy does with it. Yes, like, it's absolutely. Just, it's just not a good match. That's one yeah. of the reasons I switched to Sabian because for uh, a few years I was a UFIP endorser. Okay. Um, and I one of the reasons that I fell in love with those symbols was a drummer in L.A. named Gene Coy. Um, okay. who is just an absolute monster and I, I love his playing and he was a UFIP endorser and I heard him play these cymbals and I was like, holy shit. Wow. Like I need to get these. Um, wow. so I did and, and I, you know, I love the sounds, I love the tones, but they just didn't behave in a way that matched up with my touch and my style of playing. And wow. I got to a point where I was like, I cannot do what Gene does with these symbols like i'm just not that player so um so yeah that like switching to sabian um like you it just immediately felt like home like yeah these symbols and i are on the same wavelength just yes yeah all the time right (laughs) yeah it doesn't matter what you throw up there they're just yeah yep i can work with you (laughs) yeah because when i came to atlanta last week and i called q Mm -hmm. and i was like q man listen because i know q has every sabian symbol ever made he does so so i was like q i said i need a couple symbols man you know that i said okay well let me know what you need i'll bring them there and it was like once i set the symbols i felt right at home Mm -hmm. i felt like i was in my living room right you know i didn't feel like i was out of town without my gear you right. know what I mean? I was right there, you know. And so I said, it's a, you know, kudos to finding because symbols are extremely difficult mm-hmm. to come by. Yep. Like symbols really can really dictate your sound because truth be told, you can manipulate drums to yep. get the tone. You can manipulate them. You can't manipulate symbols. Mm-hmm. Can't. You know, if a symbol is just bright and harsh, it's just bright and harsh. Right. And aside from the sound, like you can manipulate the feel of a drum. You can't manipulate yes. the feel yes. of a cymbal. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, but those are all parts that I saw, you know, with Brian. When I saw Brian play those evolutions, I was like, okay, there's something that I have to figure out. And I played them for a while and I cracked a few, you know, <laughs> sorry. But, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I had to, you know, you got to, you had to test drive them. Right. I had to test. And I said, you know what? These cymbals with my style of playing, I can't really do the 16 inch crashes anymore. You know, if I do, it has to be more of an effect Mm -hmm. somewhere. Mm -hmm. Can't be, you know, so, but he taught me so much, man, just about how to hit the symbols and just why, you know, certain things. So when you create your sound, because I think when you create your sound, it's like getting dressed, you Mm -hmm. know, some people say, well, Hey, I brush my teeth before I leave the house. Some people say I brush my teeth as soon as I get out the shower. There's no wrong way as long as you brush your teeth. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Right. So it's like when you're getting dressed, and I feel like sometimes, you know, like when the ozone came out, it was like the and you remember this, it was the influx and the overuse of the ozone. Yeah. It was like ozone's on every gig. Ozone's right. here. And it's great for marketing, mm-hmm. you know, but musically, does this song call for an ozone? Right. Does it cost? You know? I love the analogy of getting dressed because I'm 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 fashionably inclined. Um, mm-hmm. I love clothes and I love fashion and uh, like I will I will be judgy about people who are in a given situation and are are either underdressed or overdressed yes. in that situation. And I'm like, yeah. what, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, but it's like what I was saying is like I feel like sometimes it's like. You know, we're going to go shopping like, you know, it's a, it's a gala coming up, you know, mm-hmm. let's go to the store and buy as many belts as we can. It's like, <laughs> uh, I think we have enough accessories, <laughs> you know. Right. So it's like we, we go, we, we, we put on, a you know, we put jeans on and it put suspenders on them. It's like, no, this is a gala. Right. This is requiring for something a little more upscale. But I just you know? got these suspenders. They're awesome. <laughs> You see what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, and yeah. I wore them last night and everybody was going off about them. Right. You see, see what I'm saying? Yeah, so yeah. I feel like musically we fall into that same thing, yep. you know? So it's like, you know, it's great. You know, I love sneakers. I love them, you know, but I use them for different purposes. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not wearing a pair of Yeezys on the basketball court. Right. That's just, they're not made for that. Right. Feel free to wear them to the game, you know, <laughs> <laughs> but playing in them. No, yeah. there's, that's not what it's for. So I feel like when you're selecting gear, because to me, gear is an extension of your personality. It has to be. Yeah, yeah. Because how else can I tell this drum I need this sound? And you you don't know how to do it. Mm-hmm. 
you know, so it's important. I spent a while, I spent a long time, man, with drums. You know, I'm pretty sure we can get to that part a little later or whatever. But I literally found my sound with DW drums Mm -hmm. in 2005. Mm -hmm. In 2005, I found my sound with DW drums. I didn't know a percentage of what I know now about DW drums. Because at first it was the glittery, the broken glass sparkles. And I was just like, (laughs) this looks amazing on camera. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I didn't know what went into the actual drums, Mm -hmm. you know? And I I found like, you know what? I played, and even while I was endorsed with other companies, I was still playing DW drums. Mm. I was still playing them because I just loved them. Right. And then some of the other companies weren't as, uh, they weren't as flourished. They weren't flourishing enough as far mm-hmm. as backline is concerned, if I'm here or if I'm over here. But DW, Mapex, Tama, Yamaha, those are Pearl. You can find them anywhere in the world. Right. You know? right. So that was one of the things where it was like, you know, after a while, it just became one of those things where the backline companies would reach out to me and say, hey, listen, we don't have this kit, but we do have the DW kit. Yeah. OK. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it was like, you know what? Play what makes you happy. Mm hmm. You know, whether I was going to be endorsed with DW or not, I was going to still play their drums. Right. I love I love their stuff. Mm-hmm. And when Quest Love said something, when he left Yamaha to play Lovely, mm-hmm. he said, it feels like finally you can stop cheating on your girlfriend. <laughs> <laughs> when he said it, I was cracking up, man. <laughs> but I understood him. I understood. You yeah. know what I mean? It's like, I don't have to hide and try to go through the back door of the movies, find the matinee. Like, it was like, no, I can be open about my relationship now. Right. You know, with these <laughs> with these drums. And it was such a funny way, but I was like, this is so Philly. That's you know funny. what I mean? Yeah, yeah. To play drums with, with cheating on your girlfriend. But <laughs> I get it. You know uh, what I mean? I get it. That's great, man. Um, yes, so is is there more more Anita coming up for you? Yes, there is more Anita coming up. We don't know when, mm-hmm. <laughs> but most likely it'll be towards the end of the year. We'll have probably around some uh, holiday stuff, maybe like Thanksgiving time frame, uh, Christmas stuff. Uh, we had a great run, man. We had a great run. We still have cities that we haven't done. We haven't done Philadelphia yet. We haven't done Detroit yet. Mm-hmm. Um, it's still some places in uh, like Colorado, Red Rocks that we would love to do. Yeah. Uh, but uh, we did uh, North Sea Jazz Festival. Oh, cool. Earlier this year, my first time. Yeah. My first time going there. And we also did the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I was blown away. Yeah. I was blown away by just the love for music and just the fact of people who come and support and watch. Yeah. You know, we, we were playing at the uh, Montreux Jazz Festival and Shania Twain was on the side of the stage. Wow. And I was like, that looks like her, but I wasn't a hundred percent sure. Right. You know what I mean? But I was like, okay, then afterwards, you know, she was just hanging and, you know, busting it up with Miss Baker and stuff like that. Really, really cool. Super down to earth. And then here comes Quincy Jones walking in. (laughs) Okay. How can I explain this? Yeah. You, You know what I'm saying? Yeah. But those, those festivals just draw everybody whether whether they're famous or not, because they know those festivals are just going to be a cross section of all yes. kinds of music from all over the yes. world, and yes. and true music fans uh, just show up for everything. They're like, yes. I, I I've never heard of this person. Let's go see it. I, yes, you know, and that's and I'm so glad you said that. That was the most refreshing thing to me mm-hmm. because it didn't matter who you were, if your music was good, people gravitated to it. Right. People gravitated to it. And I was like, this to me is what music is about. It's not about the brand. It's not about the name. You know, it's not about, okay, well, this artist is on it. So I'm going to go see this person. Mm -hmm. It's like there was a there was a random band playing outside of our hotel killing like kill. I was like, who are these guys? Yeah. You know what I'm saying? They were just out. They were just outside having a ball. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So by the time we got to North Sea Jazz Festival uh, in the lobby, uh, it was just, it was like a family reunion. You know, Robert Glasper came down, uh, Derek Hodge, Chris Dave came down. Yeah. Um, it was just a ton of musicians. Ronald Bruner came by and everybody was just, nobody was playing any instruments. Mm-hmm. Everybody was just sitting down, just chopping it up, just talking, you know, and uh, Avery Sunshine came. I was looking for Q at the time, oh, yeah, yeah. but uh, Q was out doing the play. <laughs> um, but it was just like a good, a great chance to sit down with everybody. And um, I got a chance to talk with Chris Hart. Chris Hart was there, the uh, Remo, uh, basically the head of Remo. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but he was just kind of telling me the different stories 
about, you know, because they've been doing these festivals for years. Right. So he was connecting me with other people that I was getting to meet and learn. And, and I was just like, wow. Like, you know, so I used the color tone drum heads on my drums mm-hmm. and they were not currently in the Netherlands, you know, so they were able to get them there. And it was just, it was a beautiful experience to see how much they actually put into making sure your gear is what you wanted it to be. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it was, it was a phenomenal festival. And to I be heard, in that environment, just, just surrounded by all kinds of music all like yeah. all day long. Um, yeah. I I've been, I've been to those festivals. I went to those two and the VN festival in France um, Never been. as a, as a college student. VN is in the South of France by Lyon and the festival, the main stage is at this ancient Roman amphitheater that seats like 10,000 people. Um, and I'll never forget, like one day on that stage, they had a Chicago blues band called Mighty Mo and the Blues Avengers. They had a Brazilian guitarist whose name I don't remember. Uh, and then they had Modesky, Martin and Wood. And 10,000 people just ate it all up, like every minute of it. And as a 20 year old college student, I was like, these yeah. are music fans. Like I thought yes. I was a music fan. These Absolutely. are true music fans. Yes. Yeah, it's amazing. I was blown away. I was blown away by the support, the love. You know, it's almost like you know, this is what you did it for when you were a kid. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Just the love of it. You didn't know who. I didn't know any of those people that were in front of us. Right. I had no. I had no clue. I couldn't ID them right now. Yeah. You know, but the energy that they gave, mm-hmm. you know, was just when they heard the intro to like you know, sweet love or something like that. Mm-hmm. The, the energy just went through the roof. Yep. You know, and, and, you know, as a musician, it's always rewarding to have someone appreciate what you're doing. Yeah. You know what I mean? Indeed. It's a very gratifying feeling. Yeah. Um, and I, like, I'm trying to take it upon myself to, to be that as an audience member more. And yes, more, sir. You know, yes. Um, it's uh, and, and it's refreshing. Like, you know, I keep going back to Billy Cobham. But last night was just like I was so happy to be in the audience. Yeah. Like, I wasn't analyzing him from a drum perspective. I was just like, look at all this music. Listen to all yeah. of this music that's coming off the stage. Yeah. Cool. Yes, sir. Well, man, thanks. Thanks so much for talking to me. I'm uh, I'm sorry uh, I missed you on, on this last swing you made through Atlanta, but I, I, I will not miss you again. Uh, it's not a problem. We're connected <laughs> now. We're connected. Yeah. I, I, hopefully I'll be back down that way soon. Yeah. And uh, I'll definitely hit you up. Maybe come by a show. We can go grab some lunch or something. Yeah. And just, just hang out. And, and, and talk uh, – symbols and talk shit about Q. Yeah, all day. All day. <laughs> all day. All right, man. Great talking. Thank to you so much. Absolutely. Have a blessing. Thanks again to Pudge Tribbett. I had a great time talking with him. Once again, if you want to add a 16-inch Sabian HHX complex thin crash to your arsenal, leave us a rating and review on iTunes and copy and paste it to our Facebook page. New content is up on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash working drummer and get in on it for as little as $1 a month. We'd really appreciate your support there. Share pics and videos of your gigs on Instagram using the hashtag working drummer for a chance to get reposted in our stories. And of course, if you want to get in touch with us, you can do so on Instagram, Facebook, or at workingdrummer.net. Next week, Matthew Krause will be interviewing drummer, clinician, and educator Dave Stark. So I hope you check that out. Until then, thanks for listening. Cheers. Cheers.